20 of Logicast, the AWS news podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined by my colleague today, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? Sunburnt. You know, sunburnt. How I skip, you know it's how I skip the as always, because you picked me up on that before. <laughs> I didn't want you to feel like part of the furniture in this podcast, but you are always here. Um, but uh, yes, we did, uh, we did rather sit directly in the sunlight with no breeze for several hours at the weekend, which is ill-advised, um, but uh, we kind of had no choice. Um, but uh, we can talk a bit more about that if you want to. But first, I want to introduce our special guest this week. Uh, we have fellow AWS community builder, John Ziola with us, uh, joining us, I think, from Pittsburgh area uh, in the USA. But uh, yeah, John, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So uh, yeah, my name is John Ziola. I am the CTO and co-founder of a company called CISO. We work with startups and mid-sized software companies doing security stuff, cloud-native security things, mostly in AWS, but we do a couple other clouds as well. Uh, and we work, you know, at that intersection of ISO 27001, SOC2, and those Kubernetes projects, things like that. I am a community builder with AWS, but I'm also a CNCF ambassador. So I'm a big fan of open source and the CNCF projects. And I, I teach some classes as well for, for SAMS, the SEC540 cloud security and DevSecOps class. Awesome. Well, it's really great to have you on board, and I'm looking forward to hearing your insights on some of the articles that we've chosen for this week. And I'd just like to say that I'm glad you said ISO 27001 before SOC 2, because normally when we talk to Americans, it's always ah. SOC 2 comes first, and yeah. nobody knows anything about ISO 27001. So for our European listeners, they'll be really uh, pleased to hear you mention <laughs> ISO before SOC 2 in the same sentence, which is uh, really fan. unusual. So, yeah, like, yeah. Good. So um, if you've listened to the podcast before, you will know that uh, every week I collate a uh, series of AWS news articles, which I distribute via my weekly AWS Roundup newsletter. Uh, then John Goodall and I, and I'm going to have to point out it's John Goodall because we've got two Johns on the podcast today, and I'm rather conscious of that. So uh, John Goodall and I uh, then select a subset of those articles that we want to talk about on the podcast. So we've got uh, several of those such articles this week. And the first one is an article from DevOps.com um, about AWS identity and access management roles and how to use them. Um, so uh, as you pointed out, John, uh, I am John Goodall. I am a, an AWS SA pro. Um, so I should know all about I am, but I want to hear what you'd like to tell me about uh, I am roles and how to use them. Oh, it's difficult and everyone gets it wrong, which is presumably why everyone keeps talking about it all the time. Um, this article is, is it, call it an article, I think it's a little bit generous. It it just kind of says, you know, what they are and how you use them, which is great. I like to see this sort of thing. It's not showing that there's anything new because it's not talking about anything new. Nothing in here is new. Uh, I think the newest thing in there is SAML Federation. Sometimes you can hear it as um, OIDC as well, and that's kind of sits in the same space. Um, but yeah, nothing in there is new. It's just kind of saying, you know, here's the different types of roles, here's different um, things you can do with them, time limits, chaining them together, so on and so on and so on, right? The thing really to talk about with IAM is everyone gets it wrong all the time. Everyone gets it wrong, which leads to administrator roles just everywhere. We, you know, anywhere star. Okay, cool. You can just run everything. Great. Why does your Lambda function need access to everything? thing oh, i couldn't work out how to put it into dynamo so i just gave it star ah right yeah yeah no don't do that so that happens quite a lot and this is quite useful for that this is very useful for that this sort of article 
And then the other thing, which um, the other John wanted to talk about, so I won't stay this thunder, was I am rolls anywhere, which is really cool. Actually, it's really cool. I've used OIDC rather than this specifically, but it's the same kind of concept to get um, things like GitLab and what have you talking to AWS without long-term credentials, because long-term credentials are the enemy. And I think this says that again, which is really good. Yeah, I thought the I thought it was really good overview. Like you said, there's not really anything new in here. Uh, differentiating service roles and service linked roles, at least for me, I think it's pretty important to reiterate that people get those two things confused a lot. What can you change? What can't you, et cetera? And just just like you were saying, John, the OIDC web identity approach is definitely the way to go. I was just watching or reading a ChainGuard article. I don't know if you guys are familiar with ChainGuard, but they just released a uh, registry for uh, images, for container images, OCI artifacts, and they only support OIDC in there. I thought that was a pretty cool way to do things. So they're kind of going away from passwords and long-term tokens and things like that and just towards OIDC, which is which is pretty awesome. Uh, but yeah, so the IAM rolls anywhere. I think that's I think that's a pretty cool technology. It actually made me think, you know, if I put my CNCF ambassador hat on for a minute, it reminded me a little bit, or reminds me a little bit of Spiffy Inspire which are projects, one's a spec, uh, Spiffy is a specification, Spire is like a reference implementation of that. And it allows you to have this like identities, your workload identities as JWTs or as certificates. And IAM roles anywhere is very similar to that, except they focus on X509 certificates that you pre-set up in IAM and then you're able to use those with your on-prem environment. So pretty cool stuff. I think John Goodall probably knows what I'm going to say next because he, he knows me so well. But I'm just curious, is there actually a CNCS ambassador hat uh, in the same way that there is a uh, community builder hat? Because, uh, yeah, well, you got that one, but I just wondered if got there was that one, one for, right? the, uh, yeah, for the CNCF there, as well. But... There is not a hat. There's lots of stickers that they give you. There's a bag I think I got, uh, like a backpack. Um, no hat, though. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to ask them for one. Maybe there's one in the store I got to go buy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think you should, yeah. But it sounds yeah. like a good swag pack nonetheless. We love swag yeah. here at, uh, at Logicast. Oh, yeah. So, uh, they go hard on the stickers. That's this gigantic pack. I mean, it's massive. There's, I don't even know, like a thousand stickers in it. It's it's great. Too much for any one MacBook. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Are they all different? Um, There's like 10 of each CNCF project or something around there. And then there's a ton of CNCF projects. So something mm. like that. Yeah. I'm actually technically still waiting. Yeah, I'm actually still waiting for mine. They've been they've been back ordered for quite a while, but hopefully we'll be getting mine soon. But if you wanted to buy it yourself, it's only seven hundred and fifty dollars of stickers. So to give you an idea of how many stickers it is, that is... it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Well, that is uh, quite a high value swag item you're getting there. Then if you're getting that for free, so uh, I think yeah. that's well worth waiting for. I don't think I've ever had an individual swag item worth seven hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that Especially is. Big investment in marketing. Yeah, we, we like our stickers here as well at, uh, at Logic Arts, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not sure we've spent that cumulatively on stickers in the life of the business. So, uh, yeah. oh, wow. uh, yeah. although we might, be, we might be approaching that now. But uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, moving swiftly on from hats and stickers, which is really not what we're here to talk about. Let's move on to the next article uh, of this week's selection, which is an article from the AWS Cloud Operations and Migrations blog um, about uh, using Amazon CloudWatch Internet Monitor for greater visibility into online experiences. Um, so this is a, a tool made available by CloudWatch where you can actually monitor the quality of the internet in the locations that you're uh, 
website visitors or app users are accessing the app from, uh, and it will even make recommendations as to how to improve um, the quality of the user experience by doing things like creating CloudWatch distributions and so on and so forth. So, John Goodall, tell us a bit more about, about this one, your thoughts on this one. CloudFront distributions. Just, just to what did I say? Watch. That's what I meant. I meant CloudFront, <laughs> obviously. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but... It, Cloud Watch is on the screen right in front of me. So, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this kind of reminds me a little bit of an AppDeck score, but it's not focused quite so much on your application. Granted, that will have a big impact on any of the graphs you see, but it's more kind of the underwear, the underlying network, because you have very limited control of how your content goes out of AWS's servers or wherever you're hosting it, and onto your user's PC. You have next to no control of that unless you're going into everybody's house and setting up leased lines and things, and no one's doing that because that's just painfully ridiculous. So you do need to take account of it, especially for things that have very low tolerance for latency, trading applications being the obvious example because microseconds matter in that kind of environment. So... This is a tool that kind of helps you understand that path between the exit of your system and the entrance to your user. That sounds really wrong there, but the entrance to your user's computer. Um, it's not free. It's probably, it's not even cheap, but it's absolutely worth it. I mean, I don't think it's expensive, but it's one of those, if you're a little scrappy startup and every penny counts, then it's probably not something you want to start paying for, but if it's absolutely necessary, then yeah, a couple of hundred, two, three, four hundred dollars a month is something you're just going to have to eat to run this. Um, the costing, the pricing is kind of as you'd expect from AWS. It's based on resources and how much work you're asking them to do and then data storage. So it's kind of all pretty logical, really. But yeah, it's a very interesting tool. It does a lot of interesting things. And I've said interesting a lot. And the most interesting thing is the nice graph that you get at the front because you give it a couple of days and then it spits out for kind of like the 95th percentile of, of your traffic, of health is and, and the score because it obviously just gives you an arbitrary score out of 100, I think. And it's got an example here of a, a big dip. And then you can go and investigate that because whilst you don't have a lot of control between the exit of your system and the entry to your user system, most outages and most issues are going to be caused by your code. So you could probably investigate it a little bit. But then, yeah, as you say, you can then go and do things like CloudFront distributions and, and moving lambdas to the edge or using CloudFront functions, or whatever they're called these days. But yeah, definitely worth looking into if you have something that is either highly latency sensitive or you're having issues with performance and users are complaining. So I know, uh, John, you thought this was pretty cool when we were talking about it earlier. Yeah, yeah. when I dug into the, the article, it was definitely a little more interesting than I thought on its surface. Like that one feature where you can just pick your population sampling and then it'll reduce your cost was kind of cool. So you could pick, in the in the blog they gave an example, if you pick 95% of your traffic, it would be $255 a month or something like that. And it shows you in this example, at least, if you moved it up to 100%, it's going to go all the way to $1,200 a month. So pretty substantial to get that extra um, that extra 5% because it's going to monitor a, a lot more sources. So they, they charge you based on what they call the city network sources uh, that are accessing your systems. And 
you don't have to really know anything about that. You just kind of pick is 90% good enough. How about 95, hundred, you could save a little bit of money and just do, I think the lowest it showed was 90%, something around there. Uh, oh yeah, 90% or you could, you could specify your own percentage, but I thought that was, that was pretty cool. And so I also, I do a lot of work with Terraform uh, and Terraform security and, and things like that. And so I, I decided, oh, I wonder if this is, this is supported by the AWS provider yet. And it was uh, merged just about a month ago. So it's still pretty new, but 4.65 or 5.0, the AWS provider supports this now. So you can deploy everything in Terraform. So it's pretty cool. Nice. Which means it's probably not in you cloud like formation yet. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> That's the running joke, isn't it? That Terraform gets it first. Yeah. I was surprised. They, they seem to be pretty on top of it. There was an issue opened within two or three days of the of it being announced. And then, uh, you know, a couple months later, they had support in the provider. So it was kind of nice. Nice to see that. Well, yeah, coming back to your CNCF open source hat, this is because a lot of the Terraform stuff is done by the community and CloudFormation yeah. is entirely done by AWS. And yeah. CloudFormation support is not a day one requirement for a service. But API support is. So Terraform gets there. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love it. Cool. I get the feeling this is kind of big boys toys, really. So, uh, you know, big B2C type applications, perhaps less relevant in the B2B space. Uh, it, de um, it depends because it's the user rather than the purchaser because B2C versus B2B implies who's paying for it, not who's using it. So one of our customers, they are technically B2B because they work with, I think, local authorities, but the users aren't B, they're C, and the users would benefit from this sort of thing mm -hmm. mm -hmm. the end users yeah. of the uh, the application yeah yeah cool okay um let's move on to our next article for this week then which is about backup strategies for amazon dynamo db i think i did actually write a blog post about this one so it's more about um cost optimization for uh, dynamo db uh, but again this is not really anything new it's a recent article which is why we've kind of picked it up as a as news um because it's a recently published post um but Nothing particularly new in this article, I don't think, but it just talks to the different types of backup strategies that are available uh, for your data in DynamoDB and why you might choose one over the other. So uh, let's let uh, other John go first this time. What are your What are your thoughts on this one? Oh, I'm other uh, John, John. Then is that just to be clear? <laughs> yeah, you're other John. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah sounds good. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have uh, a couple of different feelings about this one. So, I the way that I read into this is that they're having you know, per second uh, backup uh, strategy. So you can so you can roll back to a very specific second. That sounds a lot to me like how we used to do things with transaction logs, where you have like a full backup and then you have a transaction log backup and you just reinstate the, the full backup, run the transaction logs to a certain point and then you're reinstated to a point. So it's interesting that they don't actually say T log or transaction log in this at all, but I don't know. I, I, I had a hard time imagining other ways that you would maybe do the same thing and have it at a per second level. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't think that they're going to run a mini batch job every second to do the uh, <laughs> little, little backups. But um, yeah, so that was kind of cool. I actually, so it, at least in my experience, I don't see DynamoDB used that much. I don't know if you guys have a, a different experience. So when I see DynamoDB, I'm like, okay, great. Like Terraform locking. Awesome. Uh, or like smaller things like little uh, you know, storage of, of things, but I, I haven't seen it really used in scale uh, or adopted that much uh, generally, but I don't know if you guys are, are seeing things a little differently. 
So within our customer base, no, but in previous roles, yes, I've implemented it at large scale for a number of things where we didn't want to use relational databases because of cost more than mm. anything else, right? Because it's serverless, so you don't pay when you're not using it. And especially if you set your request model, your payment model to paper request, it meant that dev was functionally free to run the entire architecture because we weren't paying for servers to sit there spinning some rust around. Yeah, I did want to pick on this article because, as you say, yes, it's very much it's a trend log. It is, but they probably can't use that because I suspect Microsoft have kind of coined the term SQL Server, perhaps. But I wanted to pick on this because you don't see a lot of people actually thinking about the DynamoDB backup strategies, which is a bit kind of it's serverless. You shouldn't have to back it up. When ah, nah, it depends what you're backing it up against. Because yes, they have these really silly high SLAs for a. a durability and availability but no one's perfect and more than likely someone is going to delete something that they shouldn't have done rather than the service having an issue so more than likely this is protecting you against um, a user error or a, an operator error or a system error rather than an infrastructure problem but people certainly me because my background is physical infrastructure think about backups as a well the server could die and we need to bring it back up again rather than well a user could do something silly so we need to be able to bring it back up again so that's kind of why i wanted to pick on this because you don't often see people thinking about their serverless backup strategies but at the end of the day this is just a database yes it's really cool and it millisecond latency and it's really cheap and all the rest of it but it's still your data you still need to think about it you still need to protect it you still need to back it up Point in time stuff's cool. It is. It's really cool. But as you say, it's not actually that new. It's just cool because you don't really have to worry about managing it. You just turn it on and great, great. Now I have point in time. Brilliant. On demand stuff is also kind of cool because it's just give me backup now, please. And then you can kind of automate that with backup manager or with a lambda or whatever. And then between the two of them, you can hit pretty much any RPO and RTO that you might want to hit. For the listeners that aren't familiar, that's recovery point objective and recovery time objective, which is how much data you can afford to lose and how long you can afford your service to be out of action for. Everyone always says, well, we want to lose nothing and, and be up immediately, but that's not realistic. So you kind of have to go, yeah, as a, yeah, it's it's a money thing more than, more than anything. So it's too realistic if you want to spend all the money in the world backing everything up and not delivering for customers. So taking that as an aside, you pick a sensible RPO and RTO, you turn your various things on, and you're away. Of course, because it's in AWS, you export these to um, S3 if you want, but generally speaking, you don't need to because it'll just kind of keep where the backups are taken, and costs are really rather cheap, so you kind of don't need to worry about that. Yes, you do need to take account of it, but it's not so expensive that you go, oh, I can't afford to back anything up. Just turn it on, please. Just turn it on. And test it. There was a there was a couple mentions in the article, and this is something I talk about all the time. You can take backups, but if you're not testing their recovery, like you, you don't know if they're actually working. And in this article, they actually mention some table level settings that aren't a part of the backups. So you do a backup and then you reinstate it. Uh, you're not going to get your TTL, your streams, your auto scaling, et cetera, other configurations. They point to another article to give you the full list of things that it won't give you. But yeah, make sure that you are actually testing that that recovery to make sure it works, right? Yeah, and I mean, this is to your previous point around Terraform. This is where your 
infrastructure code and your backup strategy just kind of have to mesh because right. your TTLs and your stream settings and things that are subscribed to the streams and all the rest of it should be covered by your infrastructure code. And then this is your data. So if you do need to reinstate it for one reason or another, you bring them both up together and then everything should still work. But people are going to need new trousers. <laughs> right. On that uh, rather... Uh dark note let's skip on to the next <laughs> article um which is uh i like this one um uh, because i thought maybe even i could use it uh, this is about developing a serverless slack app uh using aws step functions and aws lambda um so uh and the reason i like it is because it's giving uh control uh over the aws environment uh, to users via slack um so they can just make calls into the infrastructure via Slack without any kind of admin access or, or direct access into the console or CLI access or anything and make changes to the infrastructure. So uh, sounds great. Could also be a uh, terrible idea if uh, if you get the security wrong on this. But uh, what are your thoughts on this one, guys? I think this ties back into the first point around making sure that your IAM roles are pretty well locked down because you don't want to be giving the Lambda that you're calling from Slack administrative privileges it needs to have the permissions to do whatever job it needs to do and nothing else but yes i wanted to bring this one up because this is again this nothing in here is new this this very much feels like credit to eric johnson for writing this or sam wilson and john lopez or whoever actually wrote it because there's like four people listed on there um None of this is new. This is all good content. This is good writing, but it feels like it was something that was put out for the sake of putting something out. It's not really showing anything new, anything cool, anything interesting. This is something you've been able to do for a while. So not sure why they wrote this. That being said, as you say, it's one of those one of those sorts of things that you may or may not want to build an app that you can do you need to interact with through Slack. They call it they call it chat ops, I think, because everything's something ops. So it's chat ops for this one. And it means you can do things within your account without necessarily having to be fully authenticated because Slack is all thing with um, probably a JWIT token, I should think. That's what I'd use. And then the Lambda that's actually doing the work is authenticated with its own roles and things. So it can get data from a Dynamo table and present them for like customer flow metrics or whatever. It can go off and pull some metrics off or something else and realistically it's probably going to be using doing metrics in this but yeah it's it's interesting because again it's one of those you don't need to have a server behind this to actually do something interesting with it because your slack bot is only going to be active when you actually ask it to do something do you want to be paying for it for 23 hours a day when it's going to do an hour's worth of work throughout the whole week probably yeah. not Right. I thought that was interesting, actually, because the blog that one of the angles that they take in the blog was we need to be able to handle super high scale. So that's why we've architected it this way. And I'm I don't know. I was a little surprised by that because I, I don't know many people that send that many custom Slack commands that quickly, 100,000 a second. Like, I, I don't see anyone getting anywhere near that. I mean, it, it's great. And I agree with the architecture for sure. But it's for other reasons, like you were just saying, it's super low maintenance. It's no cost if you're not running in it other than storing a zip file in an S3 bucket or whatever, right? Like it's it's really convenient to do because your people are already in Slack. So send send the messages from there. In my field, right in the like cloud native security space, tons of people are using Slack or Teams or whatever. And they want to be able to have a channel that somebody's watching at a time. You get your notification, you get an alert. You might do some initial triage in there with some custom commands. 
then you might go to actual mitigation, knock that thing off the network, kick off forensics, et cetera, without going to seven different consoles and logging in and doing whatever. You just want to do a quick uh, slash command. And so this this shows how to do that. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, a little bit weird that they taught that they focus on the scalability because I can I for the life of me, I cannot figure out what's <laughs> what scalability Corporate. concerns you might have. Corporate. What's that? Large Corporate. companies with tens of thousands of employees all talking to the same app. That's yeah, kind maybe of really, the only thing there. A really, really popular app. Maybe it's like the <laughs> Jiffy one or something. <laughs> uh, maybe the uh, the noise will come when the chatbots start talking to one another. Ah, there we go. And it's just machines, the machines taking over. Yeah. So what are the killer use cases for this, this one, do you think, guys? What would you like to be able to do in Slack? I mean, for my um, side, it's definitely the security response things, right? You've got... You've got uh, something that looks bad and you want to know if is it is it worth gathering more information this, this is something that you know pretty much all my customers have some version of this they get a first level alert they think it's bad they need to authorize the spend to do you know information gathering make an incident all that sort of stuff then they need to make an assessment they might need to like push some updates into security hub saying oh this is all good we mitigated it little things like that and if it's really bad you might need to uh, put a hold on some bit of information. So you want to copy it. You might need to make a clean room. You might want to you know, take an EBS volume snapshot or an RDS snapshot, all of these sorts of things that you could do at the command line, you could do uh, in the console, but it's much easier to do in Slack when you're right there. And it's really that first you know, 70, 80% of the work for incident response. Then you get the last 30%, it's going to be all snowflakes and custom stuff. So you're going to go in and manually look at things and investigate, but just get that, I love the word toil, get that toil out of the way, just, you know, slash investigate, gather the information, make me an incident, uh, you know, make me a new channel. I need to talk to people about this, you know, those sorts of things for sure. And even non-security related incident response, it's absolutely the right thing yep. for it because we use for our customers, we use pager duty. And yes, that gives me anxiety, but that's because that's its job. And yes, it has its own app so that it integrates with Slack, it integrates with this, that, and the other, so that you can do some bits. You can hack a, an incident through Slack. Great. I don't have to go into PD. I can stop investigating. And then, yeah, it's it's the toil, it's the undifferentiated heavy lifting, to use an AWS term, that you're going to do the same things kind of every single time. You're going to go and look at the metrics that you got for that particular incident. You're going to want to gather more information about it. You're going to want to present it. You're going to want to open a war room or some sort of channel like that. So yes, slash go. And then it kind of does fires off something in the background. Yes, you're going to have to build that as well. So that's a thing. But you haven't had to log in and deploy a stack or run a command. or It's just kind of done it for you. There are loads of other tools that do this as well. So there's, I forget the name of them, but there's a whole load of dashboarding tools that will allow you to run arbitrary commands. Um, Jenkins, if you still live in 2009, will also do that kind of thing. But as you say, you're already in Slack. You're already in your chat app. Just do it there. Yeah, it's great for like automating all of those day-to-day -day activities that people are doing. You've got some sort of a procedure. How do you take slices of that procedure, turn it into automation, move it to something like this? It's great. Nice. Well, sounds like you guys are both pretty excited about that one. Uh, but uh, sorry to tell you that we're going to have to move on to our last article for this week, um, which is an article on SC Media uh, about uh, how AWS EC2 has been exploited in new crypto mining attacks. Um, so uh, interesting, this one, because obviously um, 
doesn't make sense for you to pay for EC2 to do crypto mining because uh, it costs you a lot more to run the things in the first place uh, than the amount of uh, currency that you can actually generate. Um, so really, you want someone else paying for that, uh, which I guess is where the malware comes in. But uh, John Ziotto, I know this is uh, is your field. So uh, do you want to go first on this one? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I can say that we've seen a little bit less of this than in the past. Just in my experience, it looks like it's going down because cryptocurrency prices are not as great as they used to be. But you know, a few years ago, this was extremely hot and still seeing people abuse this um, may or may not have been on a few incident responses this year related to EC2's ECS clusters doing crypto mining and things like that. Even one, I think, John, you mentioned earlier, uh, Lambda with star permissions. Yeah, uh, that that happens. That, let's just say it, that that happens. Um, so I thought this one was funny. So the article itself was pretty short, but there was links out to other things. So I poked around a bit. Um, so the attacker in this case was called, I think it's Gooeyville, kind of like Evil, but Gooeyville, I'm not sure. And there's a quote, uh, there's a quote in the, the people who found this, they said, they are allergic to CLI utilities. And I literally laughed out loud when I read that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that makes sense. That's why they're calling it Gooeyville. Because they're allergic to CLI utilities. They use like the S3 browser, the management console, things like that to perpetrate the actual attack. So, so yeah, the, the bottom line here is the way that these attackers, um, seems like they're based out of Indonesia, are getting in is that they're either finding AWS credentials that are open somewhere on the internet on the you know in a public S3 bucket or in a Git repository or something, or they're exploiting a remote code exec vulnerability in GitLab, which happened within the I think the 2019 to 2021 timeframe. Uh, yeah, 2019 to 2021 timeframe that was. Uh, that was vulnerable. The, the new pieces of software that was shipped were vulnerable. So if you haven't updated since April of 2021, that's still going to be a problem. They could break in. And then from breaking in, they're going to you know, hit that um, instance metadata, retrieve the credentials, run more instances, et cetera. And they're going to use the AWS Management Console and S3 browser to do it. And an another thing that was interesting here was it seems like they are very interested in staying. They don't want to get kicked out. So if you find them and you start to rotate some things, whatever, they seem to be apt to putting in back doors and maintaining their persistence. So they're not just going to give up when you found them and, and kick them out a little bit because they're in this for the money. That was interesting to me, too, because the you know the prices of cryptocurrency aren't that great anymore. But they, it seems like they're financially motivated is the term that they used uh, trying to make some money off these EC2s, I guess. It's one way to do it. <laughs> It, it is an interesting one. I, I picked it out because I saw that, oh, they've gone in through GitLab because it's always typically it's people that have done something silly and then they've committed creds to source and then people have found it because that's typically how people kind of get into these. Mm -hmm. But I, I, yeah, I do think it was interesting. It's interesting that it's still going because it always used to be a big thing. And as you say, the price of crypto has crashed lately. Um, so it's a lot less interesting. But yeah, it's... You're not going to make any money mining crypto yourself, so look, get someone else to pay for it for you, but not legally. Yeah, yeah. They also tried to to blend in a little bit, which was, uh, I guess, it's pretty common, but it's a little bit of a custom thing. So once they were putting the backdoors in, they would make new users, but they would make the users conform to whatever your standard was already in the environment, as opposed to just having a standard, you know, backdoor account or something. Yeah, so like it doesn't that. stick out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. So like across the board, the policies, the users, roles, key pairs, all that, they were, they kind of followed a, a scheme that, that would is whatever the environment already had. And uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And this is where things like SCIM tools and things come into play because they've gone in and added something and it's not come from your system. So you just do a quick reconciliation and say, I didn't make that, burn mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah, especially because, I mean, if you are doing a lot of things in Terraform and they're doing things in S3 browser and management console, that's one way to differentiate it. Also, just the time frame that they're working. So uh, they were saying, you know, this is Indonesian and they actually pinned it down to primarily working between 2 p.m. and 9 p.m. UTC, uh, which is a pretty, you know, that's more of like an Indonesian time frame and, and makes sense. And that's probably not when your people are working in this. You also have people in that time zone. So if you're, you know, primarily European or primarily U.S. based or something like that, just the, t- the hours, the time that it's happening also is its own anomaly. So it's financially motivated and it's an office job. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'd be surprised how many of these uh, like criminal uh, enterprises are office jobs. I wonder if they do dental. Oh, they are very, uh, yeah, they're very well equipped nowadays, the uh, serious and organized crime guys. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yep. Anyway, on that note, uh, we have reached the end of our time uh, for season two, episode 20 of Logicast. So uh, I'd like to thank you, John Ziola, for your uh, insights there. Really great to have you on uh, as a guest. Uh, John Goodall, thanks as always. Um, so, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. We'll see you again next week with another episode of Logicast. See you again next time. Thanks.